Well, I want to begin our time with a question. Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever been misinterpreted? Has anyone ever taken your words and your motives and twisted them and turned them against you? If you live long enough in this world, you are going to face some level of personal attack for what you believe and if you take a stand. And this is definitely true when it comes to your faith in Christ. The earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was always surrounded by constant controversy. Nearly everyone that he met misunderstood or misinterpreted the purpose for which he came. Nearly everyone was guilty of misrepresenting or misinterpreting his words and works. His life and ministry were oftentimes misunderstood by the massive crowd that continued to follow him. And then on some occasions, it was even misinterpreted by those who were actually closest to him. He was especially misunderstood by the religious leaders of Israel who rejected Christ's ministry and teaching. And of course, they used this as an opportunity to attack him. We've already seen that the religious leaders had no use for Jesus. They rejected him as Messiah. And they hated him. They despised him. Everything that he said and that he did. And this only continued to escalate as the popularity of his ministry continued to grow. They despised him so much that they actually plotted to have him killed as we learned in Mark chapter 3 verse 6. Our passage today shows just how misunderstood Jesus was and the challenges that he endured as a servant. He spent much of his time teaching and explaining the scriptures. And at times he would need to rebuke those who misunderstood God's ways. And he did this regularly as he confronted the false religious system of the scribes and Pharisees. We have seen so far in our study that they have misinterpreted and misunderstood Jesus and his authority to forgive sins. So he has to rebuke them both with his words and his actions. They misinterpreted and misunderstood God's compassion to, to heal and Jesus' willingness to even touch those who were ceremonially unclean. So again, Jesus has to rebuke them with his words and actions. They misinterpreted and misunderstood and misapplied the purpose of the Sabbath. So again, Jesus has to rebuke them. The title of our message is in your notes. And it's our Lord's ultimate rebuke. In our passage, as we'll see, will reveal one of his strongest rebukes, perhaps the strongest rebuke recorded in Scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ ever gave to the scribes and to the Pharisees. Let's tackle our text and see what God's Word has for us. And please follow along as I read Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30, which will be the focus of our study this Sunday. And he, Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, 
and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself, and he began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Well, it's good for us to finally move on from our last passage. And we spent five weeks covering uh, the hand-picked men that Christ selected to uh, serve as apostles. And immediately, it may not seem like there is much of a connection as it relates to the context of our passage that we just studied and the passage that we're heading into. It might appear that there's no connection, but that is not the case. And we need to make sure that we fully grasp the concept and where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. Since the beginning of Mark chapter 2, the Lord Jesus Christ has been issuing a series of rebukes. When he healed the paralytic, the scribes questioned his authority to forgive sins. So again, he rebuked them with his actions and with instruction. And then he calls Matthew Levi to follow him as a disciple, one of the most despised people on the planet who served as a tax collector to be one of his disciples. He even goes to his house to celebrate the fact of his his following. And what happens? The scribes and the Pharisees take notice. And again, Jesus has to rebuke them because of their contempt for those who are lost, especially those who didn't meet their self-righteous standards. And then we encountered two consecutive passages that dealt with the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. The disciples are going through the fields. They're picking grains of sand. And so the scribes falsely accused them of working on the Sabbath, which they were actually permitted to do according to God's word. In Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Now it's Jesus' turn to be put under the microscope. Jesus heals a man in the synagogue. And they falsely accuse him of working on the Sabbath as well. Because he had healed someone on the Sabbath. So the Lord is constantly rebuking them with both the words and actions of his ministry. And his mounting rebukes are revealing that the leaders of Israel are completely disqualified to lead. So when we come to Mark chapter 3, and we've already been there, verses 13 through 19, Jesus is calling, discipling, commissioning, identifying the 12, which we we talked about. And this is actually a monstrous rebuke. Monstrous. He not only cleansed the temple when he started his ministry, but he's also cleansing the entire false pharisaical system of its current leadership. A false 
and cultic leadership that continues even to this day in the form of Orthodox Judaism. It is a legalistic and heretical form of works righteousness that stands diametrically opposed to the New Testament gospel. And now we've arrived at our passage today. And just when you might be tempted to think that the Lord's rebuke of the leaders of Israel couldn't possibly get any more amplified, he hammers them with a pronouncement of judgment for their unpardonable sin. What is the takeaway for us from this passage? Well, as we'll see, the passage doesn't start and end with a rebuke. There's a progression that takes place. Our Lord delivers the ultimate rebuke accompanied by four strong actions that should strengthen us to stand firm against opposition. First, our Lord overcame random ministry obstacles. Then he withstood an absurd accusation. He then persevered by staying focused on and teaching the truth. And all of this is before he finally condemned the eternal and unpardonable sin which they are committing. Our text doesn't have any commands for us specifically. But again, there are principles of application as we continue to look to the example of Christ. Let's start with his first strong action. And here we're going to see that he will overcome his human traffic jam in verse 20, followed by his confused family and kinsmen in verse 21. Look at verse 20. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again. And you may notice if you have the NES translation that there's asterisks there, right? And we explained that those are actually mean that they're in the present tense, but for the sake of the English translation, they go ahead and, and put it in the past tense. So he is coming home, the crowd is gathering again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. The only house identified in Mark's gospel so far has been Simon Peter's, where they gathered, Simon Peter and Andrew, uh, you'll recall at the beginning of, of Mark that they actually, Jesus entered and, and healed Peter's mom when she was not feeling well. And this also appears to be the same place where Jesus healed the paralytic in Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And we know by now that Jesus' magnetism and ministry attracts great multitudes, as we've seen. The house is so crowded that Jesus and the disciples, they can't even sit down to eat. The crowd is again an obstacle rather than an asset to Jesus' mission and one that he would need to overcome. It is literally a human traffic jam. All of us have had that experience. Maybe you haven't been blessed with it. When you turn to get onto a ramp on the freeway, right, and you're committed to the, the ramp, You've already gone up, there's cars behind you, and then you look ahead and you see that the traffic is completely stopped. There's your hand, you had that happen. That's, ugh, all God's people said, boo. <laughs> That's bad news, right? It's bad news. Traffic isn't moving. And so Jesus, you can picture him as he's trying to minister He's, he's looking around, and literally every single space is gridlocked with people. Everyone pressing into him, seeking him to have their need addressed by him. Imagine being just one single doctor at the largest medical facility in the world. 
And everyone is pursuing that one doctor to be, to be treated. Everybody is, is coming to him. There isn't enough time, nor is there enough space. It has reached epidemic proportions. So the only thing that Jesus could do was to panic and to scream and to totally freak out and say, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? This is so overwhelming. There's no way. Why would all these people just go away? I think that can be our reaction, can't it? Sometimes when life appears to be pulling us a hundred different directions, when there are ministry demands that keep tugging at our hearts and in our lives, we, we, we get pulled. We can be tempted to lose control or to be overwhelmed with doubt. How did Jesus respond? Our passage gives us no indication of him losing control feeling hopeless or being overwhelmed with doubt. We already see that he made a preemptive strike because he's appointed 12 men that are going to help him and and they're going to minister to the massive crowd. Even the Lord Jesus Christ relied on others to help him. What about you? Do you rely upon the Lord? Do you rely upon others when your life is getting pulled a hundred different directions? Or does your pride intervene? And do you try to manage life's demands all on your own? We're actually going to spend some time talking about this. And it's one of the blessings of care group that when we do get pulled a lot of different directions, when things do mount up, when there are trials taking place, that we can bear one another's burdens. It's a blessing to be able to lean on the help and the assistance of others. It is the very purpose, uh, and one of the very purposes and and blessings that the body of Christ provides to the believer. So again, if you don't have access to a care group or you want to know more, we want to invite you to stay. How can God's people be a blessing to you? And if you're in a care group, How can we be a blessing to those in our ministry? Jesus didn't panic. He didn't freak out. But you know who did? His family. Look at verse 21. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. In the Greek, this world, uh, uh, this word, not world, uh, his own people can also be translated kinsmen or family. And here it's best translated family because we even see the concern of the Lord's uh, mother and his brothers who are going to come in verse 31 to express concern. And what were they trying to do? His family came to get Jesus. They came to stage an intervention. The phrase lay hold on him literally means to take by force or to arrest. So they were coming to get Jesus perhaps to take him back to Nazareth and to just give him some time and hopefully he would start thinking straight. They have seen this massive crowd following him. They have seen this relentless and tireless ministry pace from the Lord. And by now they've most likely heard about the strong possibility of the scribes and Pharisees' plot to have him destroyed. So what conclusion do they reach? 
He has lost his senses. He's out of his mind. And here's one more ministry obstacle that Jesus overcomes. It makes no sense that someone would serve so selflessly and serve people in such a sacrificial way. From their perspective, it absolutely makes no sense. When we see this reality and response from our world today, don't we? When somebody gives up a very lucrative career and they decide to go into full-time vocational ministry and they're going to go to seminary and they're going to be trained and they're going to bypass their career because this is what they believe the Lord would have them do. And they have family that's unbelievers. And what do they do? They look at them and they say, that makes no sense. You're crazy. What are you thinking? When somebody decides to move from a first world country to an impoverished third world country that's filled with danger and death and disease. And it's everywhere. And they're their unbelieving family can't believe that they would willingly expose their children and their family to that kind of environment. What's the conclusion that they reach? Crazy. <laughs> they have lost their senses. And R. Kent Hughes had this to say about this verse. This is how those who have followed in Christ's stead have been judged through the centuries. When the Apostle Paul preached before Festus, Festus cried out in response in Acts 26, 24, You were out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Similar verdicts have been rendered over Luther and Bunyan and Wesley and William Borden, Borden of Yale, who left his vast wealth after attending Princeton Seminary, traveled to Egypt in 1913, where he died the same year while preparing to reach the Muslims. End quote. Jesus was, in many ways, considered a lunatic by those outside of the faith. And likewise, those of us who follow him, those of us who are in the family of faith, those of us who, who want to live sacrificially, who, who want to do all things for the sake of the gospel and for ministry, it is possible that even your own family, if they're outside the faith, will think the very same thing. And Jesus overcame many ministry obstacles, and he can help us overcome ours as well. The second strong action that should strengthen us to stand firm against the opposition is this. Our Lord withstood an absurd accusation. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. As the scribes considered the words and works of the Lord, they attribute his miracles to a demonic origin. They accuse Jesus of working under the influence of Beelzebul, or your translation might say Beelzebub. And in the Greek, the name is always Beelzebul. It's Beelzebub. It is from the, the Latin Vulgate, okay? One, one name means Lord of the Flies. The other means Lord of the Dung Heap. So either way, this is blasphemy at the highest level. 
Instead of recognizing Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the scribes charged that he was the permanent tool of Satan. It was a vicious attack on his person. Not only was he in alliance with Satan, but this statement accused him of being Satan's subordinate when they said he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. And here is one matter that we must see with clarity. It is one thing to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, and his work. That's one thing. It is a completely separate issue if you attribute his work to a demonic origin and to identify the Holy One of God with the evil of Satan and demons. Why would they say something so blasphemous and foolish? Let me tell you why. Because if they acknowledge the reality of Jesus' miracles in the power of God, they will be obligated to follow him too. If they acknowledge that Jesus is working his miracles in the power of God, they'll have to admit that their current system of belief is dead and it's being replaced. If they acknowledge Jesus and what he's doing, they are out of business and they know it. They know it. They will have to change and they're not about to let that happen. So they attack Jesus and they accuse him of working for and with Satan. And if this charge sticks, they can undermine his ministry. They can neutralize the impact. And they can draw away his crowds. It's easy to attack people you don't agree with. You don't need facts. You just need a few false accusations. And people who are spiritually blind will take the bait. When that takes place, a life, a reputation, a family, a ministry, it can be completely and utterly destroyed. As one commentator shared, beware that you are not in the business of attacking or speaking critically of others. When you do, you are truly doing the work of the devil. He is a destroyer, according to 1 Peter 5, 8, and he loves to enlist others in the destruction business. And certainly this is one point of application that we can draw upon as we look to the example of the scribes. But I also want us to consider the example of our Savior who withstood the attack of this absurd accusation. How are you going to respond the next time that you're falsely accused? Will you stand toe-to-toe, go blow for blow? Are you going to return insult, return attack? Will the sinful and prideful volcano of your heart erupt and spew fire and lava all over the person? How did Jesus respond? Did he order fire immediately in righteous indignation to come down and consume them? Did he ask Peter to go ahead, Peter, wield your sword. Go ahead, you got my back on this one. Start swinging away. He didn't. He didn't allow his emotions to govern the situation. But as we're going to see under our third point, our Lord persevered by teaching the truth. And this is the third strong action that should strengthen us 
to stand firm against opposition. He begins with a logical question in verse 23. And then he shares three illustrations to support his point in verses 24 through 27. Let's start with the logical question. Look at verse 23. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? The force of Jesus' logic is simple. If the work of Jesus is diametrically opposed to Satan, then how can Jesus be empowered by Satan? If what the scribes are saying is true, then Satan is clearly working at cross purposes with himself, which will only hasten his fall. It doesn't make any sense. It's like a crash helmet on a kamikaze pilot. It's like the state of Hawaii having interstate freeways. Granted, there are many things in this world that make no sense, but Jesus wanted them to see that this absolutely makes no sense. And so he uses three different illustrations from life that prove that Satan cannot be in the business of casting out Satan. We'll call them the secular illustration, the social illustration, and the spiritual illustration. First, the secular illustration. Look at verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand. A kingdom in division is a kingdom that cannot stand. When there is war, when there's strife and civil unrest, the stability of that kingdom is going to be compromised and its collapse is inevitable. For a kingdom to be sustained, it has to be united. USA. It stands for United States of America. And one of the greatest threats that can ever be posed to our country would be that the individual states would start disregarding the law of the land and saying, no, this is what we're going to establish through state law and never mind federal law, and we're going to start doing our own thing. And we've started to see some of the instances of this and the, and, and the tremendous threat that it, it poses to the United States. The second illustration is a social illustration. Verse 25 says this. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If the leadership within a home is not united, then that house will suffer division. And this is epidemic in our country. And you know what? It was very understood in Jesus' time as well. Divorce and division go hand in hand. And a house that exists in division is a house that inevitably faces collapse too. Children who grow up in a home where mom and dad fight like cats and dogs can bear witness to the unstable and shattered foundation. A marriage that faces a constant barrage of disagreement and disunity is a marriage that cannot stand. A divided house cannot stand. And it needs to be said that which is true for the kingdom And that which is true for the home is also true within the church. Unity gives us great power with God. Great power against our enemies. Division, on the other hand, destroys us from within. It is imperative that the church maintain a love and purpose that focuses on unity, even in the midst of differing opinions. And this is why we see unity emphasized throughout so many New Testament scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1.10, the Holy Spirit led Paul to record, 
Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then a very well-known passage as it relates, perhaps the most well-known passage on you, excuse me, unity, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And of course, there are other passages too. You can go to 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9 call to be harmonious. You can go to Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Unity emphasized again. And this is something that we have to understand, that unity is maintained. It doesn't happen naturally. You have to take the trash out. What do I mean by that? We have to deal with our sin. We have to deal with our sin. We have to do the gospel maintenance that is required so that differences don't turn into divisions. And this is true of our relationship with the Lord. It's true in our marriages. It is true in our home. And it is most certainly true in the church. Well, there's a third illustration that we need to see. Which, can, which we'll call the spiritual illustration. Look at verses 26 and 27. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Satan is always out to win as many battles as he possibly can because ultimately he knows what? He, he, he loses the war. He, he knows that. But as it relates to specific battles, I tell you what, he is not giving an inch. He is not going to compromise anything and he's certainly not going to cast out demons which would be completely counterproductive to his purposes. Jesus then goes on to say that you cannot rob a well-defended home unless you first tie up the defender of that home. And if we use a modern illustration of burglary and what needs to take place, the defense system is the first thing that needs to be disarmed, right? It needs to be taken care of. We need to look at verse 27 carefully. The strong man is Satan. And the house is Satan's domain or temporal earthly kingdom. And to bind him literally means to restrain his action. And only Jesus has the power to do this. And we've already seen the example of this when Jesus, one of the first things that he does is go, goes out to be tempted in the wilderness. He says, Satan, take your best shot for 40 days. Bring it. Bring it. I have power over you. And you want to know what? The scribes and Pharisees, they, they had no idea 
what had taken place there. When, when Jesus was tempted. And so what he's doing here is he's drawing a picture for them that helps them understand this reality. That not only does he have power over Satan, but this also captures and reveals his messianic authority. And he's trying to help them grasp it. With Satan rendered powerless by the Lord Jesus Christ, this allows Jesus to step into Satan's domain and to plunder his house and property. And only Messiah has the power to invade Satan's kingdom and deliver whomsoever he desires from Satan's grip. And here Jesus perseveres in teaching them this truth. And he's pointing them yet again to the reality of who he is. This is a glorious picture of the gospel as Jesus save sinners. And what do thieves do when they break into a house? They load up on all the worthless, meaningless things? Or do they take that which is most valuable to them? We know the answer to that question. And the Lord Jesus Christ stepped into Satan's house and he could have taken anything that he wanted And guess what? He did. He did. He grabbed a hold of that which was most valuable to him. He grabbed a hold of sinners. He grabbed a hold of you. He grabbed a hold of me. And it wasn't because we were beautiful. It wasn't because we were worthy. It wasn't because we were reaching up and begging and saying, Oh, please, Lord, take us from our sinful and desperate condition. We realize our great need. We were shackled. We were dead. We were lifeless. We were stained. We we weren't the fine china and the sterling silverware in the house. We were the broken plastic forks, the screw-ups. And through his sovereign choice and by the power of Christ, through the gospel, he chose to salvage our spiritual lives. He would literally take us by the hand and lead us out of captivity, out of bondage. And I love how Jesus expresses this reality in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The mission of Jesus is not fulfilled in compromise or in coexistence, but invading and conquering the head of the house, binding Satan, then plundering, and literally carrying off what was his possession. And the scribes that Jesus is addressing do not see the terrible spiritual danger that they're in. They have looked at God's Messiah, and they've called him the servant of Satan. And in response to their absurd accusation, Jesus persevered by teaching them the truth, but now he's going to end the discussion with a very serious warning that takes us to our final point. 
our Lord is delivering the ultimate rebuke accompanied by four strong actions that should strengthen us to stand firm against our opposition. Our Lord overcame random ministry obstacles. Our Lord withstood an absurd accusation. Our Lord persevered by teaching the truth. And finally, our Lord condemned the unpardonable sin. First, we need to cover the pardonable or forgivable sins because this is what Jesus does in the text. So let's start in verse 28. He says, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they uttered. He begins with this glorious statement. All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And notice it isn't all of the sins pointing to universal salvation, but it is saying all sins referring to the different types of offenses. All manners of sins and blasphemies can be forgiven. And we all said, praise the Lord. Take any sin that you have ever committed, any blasphemy that you have ever spoken or thought, and it can be forgiven. Any of your worst actions, any of your worst mistakes, any of the most stupid and heinous and dumb things that we can do, there's nothing, nothing that he won't forgive in your life. And it's so interesting. I was actually talking and, uh, with a brother uh, in our church who actually even shared that he had been witnessing to this certain friend. Came to church a, a few weeks ago. The friend did and had the opportunity to hear the gospel preached. But he was sharing, you know, that this guy was basically saying that he felt like he needed to get his life in order before he could become a Christian. I need to get cleaned up. No, no, that's not how it works. No, you, you come, you bring your baggage. You bring it all. You bring everything that you have committed, everything that you have ever done. And we'll let the Lord Jesus Christ clean it up. Amen? Amen? Because he knows best how to clean it up. He, know, he, he can empower. He can enable us. And this is... 1 John 1, 9, all the way. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Colossians 2, 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And the list of scriptures abound. And this is what it means to celebrate the gospel. Every single sin has been accounted and atoned for through the work of the cross. Every single one, past, present, or future, dealt with, atoned for. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Amen? You guys wouldn't make it in the South, I'll tell you that much. Can I get a witness? Amen? Amen? Amen, and praise God. And no person should allow an offense or a sin or a wicked deed to stand between them and God's forgiveness. Regardless of who you are, 
or what you've done, the Lord will forgive you, and he will not turn you away. And as one theologian shares, and this is fantastic, there is no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. Think about that one. Not one instance recorded. Yet, after the scribes have made their absurd accusation, there is something that still needs to be addressed in our passage. Jesus does declare that there is a sin that never has forgiveness or is an unpardonable offense. What is it? And how should it be understood? And most significantly, who does it apply to? Look at verses 29 and 30. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The matter of the unpardonable sin has been a source of worry and fear for a lot of believers over the years. Some have wondered if they've even committed that sin or if there's a potential possibility of them committing that sin in the future. And so it needs to be understood in its context. And let me just say, there are passages where it's absolutely critical to understand the context, and this is one of them. Let's follow the progression of our verses. The first word that we need to understand in verse 29 is the verb blasphemes. Blasphemy is an anglicized form of the Greek term blasphemia, which scholars believe derives from two roots. The first root meaning to injure, and the second means to speak. And the word would thus suggest injurious speech. The word blasphemy in its various forms appears almost 60 times in the New Testament, and it has a variety of different renderings. Blasphemy, uh, reviled, railed, to speak evil of, evil spoken of. And it's evident from these examples that blasphemy is a sin of the tongue. Even Jesus defined the term in Matthew 12, 32 in the context, the parallel passage to, to what we're studying today, referring to blasphemy. He used, after he referred to blasphemy, he uses the phrase, speaks a word against and we know from our context that blasphemy in general is not what is being referred to as the unforgivable sin. Why? Verse 28 helps us to see when it clearly says that all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, right? Following the progression of verse 29, it reveals that Jesus is specifically talking about whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. And so using the working definition of blasphemy as speaking evil of, it becomes clear that the sin that Jesus is talking about is described as a verbal sin that the scribes and Pharisees had committed, or at least were dangerously close to committing. So, what would they have done? What is it that they would have done that puts them in this jeopardy of committing the unpardonable sin? Well, according to his own testimony... During Jesus' time on earth, he cast out demons by the Spirit of God, which he explicitly says in Matthew 12, 28. When the Pharisees saw that Jesus performed these verifiable miracles, they could not argue with the fact that Jesus possessed certain powers 
that they and others did not have. So in order to cast suspicion on the ministry of Jesus, the scribes in Mark's account and the Pharisees in Matthew's account claim that he was casting out demons by Satan's power. The ruler of demons. This was a unique experience for the scribes and Pharisees who witnessed firsthand the full revelation of Jesus' miracles. And so they have seen his person and his work. And even after they have uh, seen the testimony of the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees attributed Jesus' power to Satan. As one theologian appropriately states, they were claiming that Jesus was Satan incarnate instead of God incarnate. It is this specific offense that our Lord calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It isn't merely the rejection of what the Holy Spirit reveals about Christ in the scriptures. It's actually much worse and goes beyond this. It is, in essence, calling the Holy Spirit an evil spirit and attributing the Holy Spirit's work through the Lord Jesus Christ as evil and satanic, which is absolutely blasphemous and unpardonable. The next question that usually gets answered or asked and and answered after this is, is it still possible to commit this sin today? Opinions vary because how blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is defined is not agreed upon by every theologian. For example, if you define uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit simply as the rejection or refusal to believe what the Holy Spirit records about Christ and the gospel, then it could be argued that this sin could still be committed today. And after all, that does warrant an eternal penalty, right? There's, there's still an eternal consequence that comes with that, but counterarguments can be made when you turn the table. We weren't all Christians in that place. At one point in time, even the Apostle Paul refers to himself before salvation. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he said that he was a persecutor of the church. He was a blasphemer. Jesus is speaking of something that is absolutely unpardonable that they had done. And the truth is nobody else would be able to relive the same experience that the scribes and the Pharisees had with Jesus. And so that's, it's interesting to think about. Is there, you can still be an unbeliever. You can still reject. Now, somebody might say, and the argument would go something like this. I can still blaspheme. I can still, you know, say something, maybe even attribute Jesus' works to, to um, evil today, right? Say that he was evil. You know what? You, you can be a Satan. You, you can be a Satan worshiper. And through the power of Christ, through the gospel today, you can have forgiveness. You could say that you, you, you know, you, somebody you've heard about, you know, people, demonic influences, people talking about selling their souls to the devil. First of all, your soul isn't even yours to sell. <laughs> it isn't. You are God. Everybody is God. He has made everything. It's up to him 
to do what he would do, what he wants to do. It's not up to you. You're not the sovereign one. And so when we look at this, the evidence seems to favor the idea that the sin cannot be committed today. And let me give you some reasons that, that may help with this, mainly because the miraculous age has ceased. And Jesus is no longer performing miracles in person. Another compelling reason is that there's no other mention of the sin in any biblical passage written after the resurrection of Christ. Absolutely none. None of the inspired New Testament writers refers to such a sin in any epistle or in the book of Acts, nor are there any warnings offered to avoid this sin after the church age began. It's unpardonable. I would think that it would be like not just mentioned uh, once, not twice, but repeatedly. So breathe easy. If you're, if you're in Christ, then you are eternally secure. Amen? And if you're not in Christ, this means that you're still in your sins. But the good news is that you can be forgiven of them all. Your blasphemies, your adulteries, the deepest and darkest skeletons in your closet can all be forgiven if you will do one thing, if you will turn and repent and focus on Christ as your sin bearer and seek his forgiveness, that you will trust in him as Savior and Lord. Ironically, I began the service asking whether you have ever been misrepresented and I want to close our time together by revisiting this question in a gospel context. Only with Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord can you be properly represented before God the Father. In the day of judgment, only with Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord can you have proper representation. You need his perfect righteousness, right? Credited to your account. Gospel proclaiming church, we, we celebrate that reality. Huey mentioned it even in the opening prayer. It has nothing to do with any self-righteousness. It's the perfect, spotless righteousness of him. If you reject Christ, that means that you're choosing to represent yourself. You're choosing to represent yourself in the courtroom of God. You should ask Brian Kang. How often, how well things go when criminals decide, I don't need a lawyer. I'm not going to use the public defender. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to represent myself. There's a good idea. You could let us know how well that is fared for a lot of people, I'm sure. And if you represent yourself, you're basing your representation on your own moral perfection and obedience to God's law. And God's world, word reveals that nobody can stand on their own merits. Even righteous deeds, considered righteous deeds, are considered filthy rags. Have you turned to God and asked him for forgiveness? And have you trusted in Christ so that you do not die 
in your sins. I know that there are many in this room that have, but I would not presume for even one moment that there could be someone who has yet to do that. Will today be the day? Is God, did God ordain for you to hear this message? Did God ordain to hear in his faithfulness to provide the clear exhortation of the gospel so that you could respond to him? Today is the day of salvation. And our church family celebrates it every week. And for those who may have never celebrated it, today, let today be the first day that you can join in the celebration. Pray with me. Father of mercy, Father of grace, Father of truth, we pray now and we are so grateful for the opportunity to see the principles that we can learn as we look to your son, who is our great discipler, who is the one who teaches us and leads by example so that we can continue to live a life in such a way that your name is magnified. I pray, Father, that you would continue just to capture our hearts with the reality of all that we've seen in this passage. There are many in the room that had to overcome many obstacles and are still overcoming obstacles as a result of their faith. I pray that you would continue to allow us to be strengthened and to follow your example and not be governed by emotions, but to be governed by the truth. And Lord, nobody has received more accusations, false accusations, comments and blasphemies than you have. And I ask, Father, that you would allow that to put into perspective the struggles, the strife, even those who turn against us in this world. And in some instances, it's because we're taking a stand for you in our school, in our workplace, in our families, wherever it might be. May we just be captured by the reality of you receiving the most absurd accusation that could ever be made. Father, we thank you for Christ and his perseverance in teaching and how blessed we are to continue to study his word. Pray that you'll just continue to help us all to persevere in the truth. Help us to be captured. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and what it meant for the scribes and the Pharisees to utterly reject and take unbelief to a whole new level by attributing the holy sanctified work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working through your son to demonic influences. It, it, it frightens me to even say that, even to have those words come out. I, I don't know how they could allow those words out of their mouth. And I, I do know it's by your grace. It's by your goodness. Thank you for this time that we've had as a church. We ask that you'll continue just to bless our fellowship this morning, that you'll encourage us with our care group ministry as we talk about it second hour. 
We commit the remainder of our time to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.